Our question is, what is Medicare for all? The goal of this episode is to serve as an introduction into the U.S. healthcare system. Hopefully it will provide a historical framework and a baseline understanding necessary to dive deeper into our question, what is Medicare for all and what other proposals exist? Welcome to Understanding Medicare for All. I'm your host, Stacy Yee. And I'm your other host, Jake Petrini. Hey Stacy, do you know what Medicare for All is? No, do you? No. We are confused, perplexed, interested, curious, and uncertain about Medicare for All. Today, we're really fortunate to be joined by a professor of health economics and policy at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Professor Anna Seneco. Professor Anna Seneco is an assistant professor of health economics and policy in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard School of Public Health. Professor Seneca received her PhD from Harvard University in 2010. She has expertise in health economics and health policy. The unifying theme of her research is an effort to understand consumer decision-making in healthcare settings and the implications of consumer and other stakeholder behavior for policy that aims to improve the quality and efficiency of the U.S. healthcare system. Professor Seneca's work has been published in the Journal of Health Economics, Health Affairs, and numerous other peer-reviewed journals. Professor Seneco, thank you so much for being here with us today. Great, thank you for having me. You are an expert in consumer decision-making. Could you define a healthcare consumer for us? Yeah, that's a great question because we don't often think of people in the healthcare system as consumers. We think of them as patients. And I use the term consumer largely because our U.S. healthcare system is so market-based. So really, that's any individual in the U.S. It can include patients when they're using care, but it can also include people not in the healthcare system who might eventually need healthcare. So could you clarify what exactly you mean by market-based? And then what would a system that is not market-based look like? In the U.S., I would say we have a market for health insurance because there are multiple providers of health insurance and individuals choose their health plans. Sometimes their employers choose their health plans for them. Sometimes the state or the federal government chooses a set of health plans to offer. But the fact that individuals make a choice makes it a market. There's multiple pharmacies, for example. Non-market-based system, I would say, is one where there is no choice, where the government decides what the healthcare program for the country will look like and takes away the choice on the individual's part. There aren't many examples of a complete non-market healthcare system in the world. In Canada, for example, there is not a market for health insurance because there's just one health insurance program. So that would not be market-based. But there is a market for healthcare providers, doctors and hospitals, because individuals still choose which of those they're going to go to. What makes the U.S. healthcare system unique among developed countries? The U.S. is unique among developed countries in that we do not provide universal health insurance access to all American citizens at a minimum, and, and also we don't provide it to all people living in the U.S., whether here legally or not. There are other countries that have a market-based system, but different from the U.S., they provide universal access. So why would other countries have universal health insurance? Yeah, well, there's a very good set of evidence 
that shows that having health insurance makes people better off. And we see that in a few ways. We know that having health insurance makes people uh, feel better. They report higher self-reported health. It also um, leads to higher financial stability, lower risk of bad debt, and lower risk of bankruptcy, for example. And then there's also some evidence for the lowest income that having health insurance is good for your health. It sounds like the U.S. is unique in that it prioritizes choice in the design of its healthcare system. Would you say that more choice leads to better health outcomes? Yeah, that's a great question because we know that, especially here in the U.S., people really like choice. It's a, it's a huge part of the ideology of this country is that people like the freedom to choose, you know, whether it's health plan or their doctor, to choose the one that they feel is right for them. Economic theory also predicts that more choice leads to better outcomes. If you have more choices, then individuals are going to be uh, better able to find the option that's best for them. And that would lead to higher welfare, which is what an economist uses to measure being well off. So that's what the economic theory predicts. In practice, there is a question as to whether there's thing, such a thing as too much choice, where you get to large, large numbers of choice, especially among complicated options, and which point does more choice lead to people to become paralyzed with their choice or not evaluate all the options. They sort of get to a point where they've evaluated a few and they're like, okay, that's good enough. So it's still a question in the health insurance area. We're trying to understand, is there a point where there's too much choice? There's some evidence suggestive that in health insurance, there certainly is. But overall, the benefit of choice is that People like it, and we think it allows people to find the options that are a better match for them and their needs. So a system in theory could have choice in terms of providers and hospitals and where a patient seeks care. But in terms of where your insurance is provided, there could be limited choice in that? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you've just described a few different major countries in the world. That's how Canada operates. The way that health insurance and health care is is paid can be distinct from the consumer's experience about choice. So Canada has a system where there is a single government health insurance program. So there's no choice about which health insurance plan you have. Everyone has the national plan, which in Canada is also called Medicare. However, the doctors and hospitals are private. And so the government through the insurance program pays those doctors and hospitals. So it's just one payer. But if you're a patient, you can choose where to go in your local community. So there's you know, a variety of physicians you can choose from. There's maybe a couple hospitals. There's not as many choices as we have here in the U.S., but there are certainly choices among providers. And in the UK, there's one national health insurance program, and the healthcare providers are also owned by the government. But still, if you are a patient, you have some choice, limited compared to the US, but you have some choice about which provider you go to. I think the big, one of the big takeaways that I always think about when I'm comparing the US to the other major developed countries in the world is 
do Americans have health insurance, first of all? And secondly, what does it cost them out of pocket, both to be insured and to get care? And so in the U.S., compared to other countries, you're going to have some Americans who don't have health insurance. It's not the case in other developed countries. And then the other thing about the U.S. is that the cost of health insurance and the cost that Americans pay when they go get care is higher out of pocket than what people in other countries pay. So I have a bit of a spicy question. Why would someone who has health insurance care about expanding to universal health insurance? So I think there's a few reasons. One is from a self-motivated perspective, you could lose your own insurance at any point, uh, depending on the source of coverage. So if you are insured through your employer and you have pretty good coverage, that's great. But should um, things take a turn for the worse, your employer goes out of business, you lose your job, something changes, you could lose your coverage. And then be left facing either unaffordable coverage in the private market, not having access to public coverage. You could be one of those uninsured people yourself, depending on the economy. I think that there's also this self-interested perspective. We do have laws in the U.S. that if people who need health care show up in the emergency room, show up at a hospital, they are treated. And that is generally paid for through public funds of some form, whether they're at the state or federal level. And the source of those funds is taxes, and we are all paying taxes. So given that we're paying taxes and we want our tax money to be used you know, as efficiently as possible, we also might have a self-interest in having people have insurance so they can get more appropriate care than sort of last-minute acute care. And then lastly, I think there's these findings that it makes people better off. It's definitely the ideology that dominates in a lot of European countries, which is that over there in Europe, they think is part of, you know, a civilized society or solidarity, having some minimum floor for all citizens. That may or may not um, resonate with everyone here in the U.S., but it's another reason that universal access can be important to people. So the U.S. healthcare system wasn't built overnight. So what were some of the more pivotal and critical moments within our history that brought us to where we are today? Yeah, I, I love this question because I feel like when you stop and try to understand the U.S. healthcare system and how it works, more often than not, people who are new to it say, wait, what? What? How could it have, how could it have ended up looking like this? And they are absolutely right. If you were to start and design a healthcare system from the ground up, you would never design this one. And this one is really a uh, result of incremental pieces built over the last 125 years or so to get where we are today. And so really, you know, in the early 1900s, there wasn't a lot of health insurance. Most people were uninsured. And into the mid part of uh, the 20th century with World War II, employer-sponsored health insurance benefits began uh, to come on the scene in really sort of a meaningful way because of the, the wage freezes that were imposed during World War II by the government in order to combat inflation. And so employers, when they couldn't increase wages to attract workers, they had to look for other benefits that they could use to you know, get workers to come to the firms. And so they started offering health insurance as a non-wage, non-taxable benefit 
to make their employment offers more competitive. And because of a feature of the U.S. tax code, which makes health insurance payments not subject to income tax, employers could offer pretty generous health benefits and over time have continued to do that. So that led to really dramatic importance for employer-sponsored health insurance in the U.S. In the 1960s, sort of 50s and 60s, it became clear that there were groups of the population that were not covered in the employer-sponsored insurance market and were really falling through the cracks, and in particular, the elderly. Because of two things, one, elderly are uh, less likely to work in general, and the other thing is elderly are more likely to be sick. And so as a group, they are less attractive to an insurance company to offer insurance. And so it became clear that a government policy would be needed to provide coverage to our elderly population. And so in the 60s, after Kennedy's death, Johnson, with a very strong uh, majority in Congress among his Democratic Party, passed Medicare and also Medicaid. Medicaid was not originally part of the it was, it was a second plan and got sort of brought on towards the end, but that provides a public coverage for both the elderly and the lowest income. And then since then, we've really just incrementally through policy added to these um, programs. So adding the prescription drug benefit to Medicare in 2003, expanding Medicaid first through the Children's Health Insurance Program and then most recently through the Affordable Care Act. And on the employer-sponsored insurance side, while that market has led to a very robust commercial insurance industry, there's been policy efforts to um, strengthen the ability for individuals to purchase individual insurance through what's called the non-group market. So it sounds like the employer-sponsored insurance kind of happened coincidentally or almost by accident? By accident is what I would say. Yeah, it was an accident of history. I don't, I don't, it was not an intentional effort to have this be the primary uh, vehicle through which Americans are insured. So we'd like to recap the groups of insured people we've talked about so far and provide some data for our listeners before we move on. We have four primary groups of insured people in the U.S. The first group of insured people have employer-sponsored insurance, which again was born out of World War II and today makes up 49% or almost half of the U.S. population. Our second and third groups are Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare, which mostly covers people above the age of 65, today represents 14% of the U.S. population. Medicaid, which mostly covers low-income households, represents 21% of the U.S. population. The fourth group of insured people is made up of those who do not qualify for either employer-sponsored insurance, Medicare, or Medicaid, so they directly purchase health insurance through the individual or non-group market. They make up 7% of the U.S. population. These numbers are from the Kaiser Family Foundation's 2017 data. Yes, those are the four most discussed segments of the insurance market in the U.S. There's a few other small ones. For example, there's other public insurance programs available primarily to veterans and a couple other in on the Indian Native American reservations. There's a separate health insurance system. So in addition to employer-sponsored insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, and individual insurance that's purchased directly to with an insurance company or on the ACA marketplace, 
There are a few other public programs, such as the Children Health Insurance Program, the VA Health Insurance, and TRICARE, but then about 9% of the population is also uninsured. Can you talk a little bit about the 9% of people who are uninsured in the U.S. and what their options are when it comes to medical care? So when we have people who are uninsured in the U.S., we can either put them on an insurance program or have them stay uninsured and just seek care in the case of emergencies or when things get really serious. But in both of those cases, whether it's putting people on Medicaid or funding these emergency room bills that can't be paid, both of those are paid with tax dollars. I'm going to interject here with a clarification that Professor Seneca requested that we make for our listeners. She wants to make clear that not all health care for people who are uninsured is automatically free care. In fact, people who are uninsured are often billed higher prices for their care than people who are insured. Some people who are uninsured pay those bills in full, and many can only pay partially or not at all. That ends up being free care, which is primarily funded with tax dollars. We, as individual taxpayers, are paying. And so you might want to think about, well, how do I want my tax dollars used to help the uninsured population? Because they're going to through one of these routes. And we have evidence that when people gain Medicaid, as opposed to being uninsured and using free care clinics in the emergency department, people report that they feel better, their self-reported health goes up, and that their levels of depression go down. So there is a real evidence-based impact that shows that insurance for these people improves their health in this way. And there's other evidence um, showing that their uh, risk of catastrophic expenses goes down. And so my interpretation is that for these folks, having insurance reduces their stress of worrying about being sick and worrying about having a big medical bill. And the combination of that makes people feel better and allows people to have a better quality of life, at least on those dimensions, than when they were uninsured. And so if I were thinking about how to use my tax dollars, I would prefer to spend them to insure people and get those better outcomes than to fund the emergency room debt. Given that health insurance is fairly recent in the context of human history, someone might ask, well, if we were all uninsured before and we were all fine, then why do we need health insurance now? So the health care available to us in the early 1900s is incredibly different than what we have available to us today. Our outcomes are significantly, significantly better than they were in the 1900s. So we've made incredible advances in quality of care and and what we get for our healthcare. And along with that, the cost of care has gone dramatically up. And so in the 1900s, we didn't need insurance as much because there wasn't as much to pay for. Today, catastrophic illness can cost, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. And so we need insurance in order to protect against that financial loss um, in the event that we become sick. David Cutler here at Harvard has done led a lot of studies that have shown dramatically how the money that we have spent on those interventions has been worth it in terms of the life years gained. But that care is expensive, and any individual patient can't pay for it on their own anymore. That makes a lot of sense. So you're an expert in consumer behavior and decision-making. 
what do you think the biggest pain point is for consumers or what's the biggest problem on their mind when they're making choices within this current healthcare system? Yeah, well, we've talked a lot thus far about the uninsured, but while that's an important slice of the U.S. population, it's 9%. And what we haven't talked about is all the people who have insurance, but who are still struggling to afford their healthcare. And if you ask you know, Americans today, what's the issue that they're most concerned with? It's the affordability of their healthcare costs. These are insured individuals and people are paying higher and higher dollars to access healthcare, whether it's for their prescription drugs or because of high deductible health plans where people have to pay, you know, $1,300 or more before their health insurance benefits start to cover their care. People are struggling with those healthcare costs. And I think that's a huge, huge pain point for uh, the average American. People also care a lot about access to care. And so there are narrow network plans in urban areas in particular where people can save money on their health insurance. Those are generally okay. People can run into high cost if they choose a provider out of network, and so that can be challenging. I think, though, when it comes to networks and access, the bigger concerns today are Americans living in rural areas. Access to healthcare in rural areas is of concern. It's getting worse, and providers are leaving rural areas. And then for individuals, we're finding that people in rural areas are driving farther and farther to get care, which is another burden on patients. It's hard. So in talking about affordability, you mentioned out-of-pocket costs. Could you tell us a little bit about each one and give us a quick definition? Yeah, absolutely. So when people pay for their health insurance, there's a monthly premium. Would you say that the monthly premium that you pay for insurance is like a monthly subscription fee for a streaming service? Right. It's like the monthly amount you pay in order to have your plan. And you have to pay more to get, get the care. Right, exactly. So it's kind of like paying a subscription fee for a streaming service. So you get to watch all these TV shows and movies. But then on top of that, you have to pay for almost every movie or TV show that you watch. You pay a little bit. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So in addition to the subscription fee, you might have to pay out-of-pocket costs to receive certain care. When they go to use care, most Americans also have what I call out-of-pocket costs, which means they pay something out of their pocket at the point of care in order to receive services. And out-of-pocket costs can come in a a few different forms. One is a deductible, which is a lump sum of money that individuals have to pay before their health plan starts to um, cover their costs. We've seen over the last 20 years a real rise in what are called high deductible health plans. High deductible for an individual today is $1,300 or more, which means that individuals have to pay the first $1,300 of their care before they get any health insurance coverage. There are some exceptions to what's covered outside of the deductible. So you can still get your well visit, for example, and get some of your cancer screenings. But if you needed a specialist visit, if you were sick, if you needed an x-ray, if you needed labs, all of that, you'd have to pay for yourself until you satisfy the deductible. Once you've satisfied the deductible, if you don't have a deductible, there are two additional forms of uh, -of out-of-pocket costs. One is a co-payment, which is a flat fee that you pay when you access care 
So think of your $25 when you go to your doctor's office, that's copay. There's also coinsurance, which is a percentage of the total cost that you're responsible for when you use care. So let's say it's 10% or 20%. So instead of $25 when you go to the doctor, which is, you know, real money, but you know what the upper limit is, coinsurance would be you'd pay 20% of all of the costs at the doctor. So what's hard about that is that there's no cap. You don't necessarily know what the upper limit would be of those costs. But then regulated by the ACA, health plans have to have an out-of-pocket maximum. And that is the amount of money in total that you can be required to pay out-of-pocket over the year for your, for your costs. And I think that this year, the out-of-pocket maximum can't be any higher than about $7,000 for an individual plan. And in some plans, it's a lot lower. Like a more generous health plan, it would be a lot lower. So that includes copay, coinsurance, and deductible? Yes, includes all of it. And then to make things more complicated, I just described private health insurance or commercial health insurance. So for the 65 and under. Medicare has all those components, has its own structure of its cost-sharing benefits. And Medicare's cost-sharing is, is less generous than private insurance and there is no out-of-pocket max. So a lot of Medicare beneficiaries will buy a second insurance plan in order to cover some of these out-of-pocket costs and in particular to help in the case of catastrophic costs. But if you didn't have a supplemental insurance plan and you had Medicare and you got really sick, you would be exposed to potentially a lot of cost sharing. The insurance companies are really just trying to cover their costs. Right, and so they set the premium based on the, your expected use, and then the more they charge in cost sharing, the lower your monthly premium should be. So if you pick a plan that has a really high monthly premium, you should have less cost sharing. And on the flip side, some of these high deductible plans have very low premiums, and that's because um, the insurance company knows that then if you actually use care, then you're gonna be sharing more of their cost down the road. So relating it back to our earlier analogy, if I pay a higher subscription fee each month or premium, I'll gain access to more channels at a lesser cost. And on the flip side, if I choose a plan that has a lower subscription fee each month or premium, the shows that I have to pay for might cost a little bit more. So bringing it back to the healthcare context, if I am relatively healthy and I know that I won't be using too many healthcare services during the year, then I might choose a lower premium plan or a lower subscription fee plan, banking on the fact that I will not be using that many services and spending that much money. Right, that there's a pretty low probability that you will actually use healthcare and need to pay those high out-of-pocket costs. Hmm. Exactly. Some people choose high premium very comprehensive plans because they uh, know that they'll need health care that year. And so they uh, don't want to have one big bill, you know, in the future. They want to pay monthly in the form of a higher premium. Some people choose higher premium plans because they're worried or they like to feel like they've got good comprehensive coverage just in case they'll need it. We call those people more risk averse. But both of those reasons lead people to buy a higher premium, low-cost sharing plan. 
Some of our listeners might be curious as to why insurance companies charge different premium prices for similar products. Could you explain that? So at any large employer, you're going to have you know, thousands of people and there's going to be some who are healthy and some who are sick. And that is an ideal grouping of people for a health plan because you really want to have uh, a mixed risk pool so that everybody buys health insurance, everybody pays premiums, and then that pool of money is used to pay for care for the subset of people who are sick. That leads to lower overall average premiums and everybody benefits because everybody's insured. As the pool size gets smaller, then that can drive premiums up. I'm interjecting again to clarify why a health plan with a smaller pool of people would result in a higher premium. If one person in a small pool of people gets very sick and racks up high healthcare costs, there are fewer people within that pool paying premiums with which the insurance company uses to pay for care. In other words, there are fewer people with whom to spread that cost among. A smaller pool of people in a health plan poses more risk to the insurance company, so insurance companies will charge higher premiums to minimize that risk. The other thing that we worry about is that if you bring people together to voluntarily buy insurance, the people who are going to be more likely to buy it are the ones who know they need health care, who are going to be sicker, who are going to spend more money, and that's going to drive premiums up. So the composition of who's insured together really matters when it comes to the price of care. And so large employers do a good job of pooling risks and you know, a large government plan can do the same thing, basically pools everybody in a population and then, you know, healthy people and sick people are together in a pool and sort of offset each other in terms of their health needs and health spending. So then depending on how small or large the employer is will really determine how large or small the premium is? Yeah, exactly. So when you look at the employer-sponsored market, we see almost all large firms and by large, I mean, you know, a thousand employees or more offer health benefits. And that's because with that number of employees, you really have a robust risk pool. You know, a lot of healthy people and maybe a few sick people, and you can sort of smooth that health spending over this large population. As employers' size gets smaller, and in particular gets into the less than 100 employees or even less than 50 employees, we see a lot fewer firms offering health insurance benefits. And that's because of this numbers issue and how expensive it is to buy health insurance for such a small group. And take that to extreme, to the individual market where people are just buying a plan for themselves. Before the ACA, these plans were really expensive. And health insurance companies would also not offer coverage if people had a health condition that was known called a pre-existing condition. And that's one of the things the ACA changed and basically regulated this market so that everyone could buy non-group coverage if they wanted it. So the golden question, what is Medicare for all? The golden question, <laughs> the theme of the podcast. I think the question, what is Medicare for all, is a great question. And it needs to be answered if you want to decide whether you're for or against it. You can't be for or against Medicare for all until you know what it is and what it would do and what it would change. 
So we are getting a little bit more insight from the current political candidates about what they think Medicare for all is. But, you know, coming from a place of not knowing, all you've heard is Medicare for all and try to figure out what that means. It could mean something like what we see in our neighbors to the north, which is a government health plan with a fully private healthcare provider market, you know, private hospitals and doctors. You could go to the UK, where you have not only a government health plan, but government-owned hospitals and provider groups. That's quite extreme relative to where we are today. Or you could go to the other European countries, um, like uh, Germany, for example, where it's still government access to insurance, but individuals pick their own health plan from a market of health plans and also you know, choose their own providers based on their health insurance coverage. And so all of those could be a form of universal coverage. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important to understand the specifics of the policy proposals and have a debate about the specifics and what do we think is good about it and where are the weaknesses to decide whether we're for or against it. But the blanket term Medicare for all doesn't tell us enough on its own. So when we're hearing politicians talk about Medicare for all, whether that's a proposal in the House or Senate or a presidential mm -hmm. candidate's platform, are you saying that they're all talking about different things? Well, up until recently, I think it was hard to know. More recently, the candidates are becoming more specific. And in particular, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have released Medicare for All plans, Elizabeth Warren in particular has the most detailed version, that describes moving away completely from private insurance into a government-run Medicare program for all Americans. I think that the other candidates are favoring a more incremental approach we see that diversity also, I think, in the Congress. And I think the question becomes, even then, if we have a government-run Medicare program, you know, is, does it look like fee-for-service traditional Medicare? Or does it look like Medicare Advantage or the combination of the two, which is what we have in Medicare today? And I think people who are closer to the policy sphere and the political debate will probably have more information on this than I do. I would say my take on it is that I really, I really want to understand what is it that we're debating. If you change something, what changes for individuals, both in terms of the health insurance they have, what they pay out of pocket when they go to the doctor, and the choices that they have, those changes will create new incentives. And so then how do we think people are going to respond to those new incentives? And really playing that out and understanding, you know, what we think is going to happen is what, what we can use to decide whether we support or oppose a policy proposal. And that is exactly what we're hoping to find out through this podcast as well. Yeah, and I think we are one step closer to figuring that out. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. Thank you for joining our episode with Professor Anna Seneca. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website where we will have a summary of the episode and links and articles for additional learning. And don't forget to join our second episode where we interview Professor John McDonough about improving our healthcare system and improving health. Thank you all for joining us and we'll see you next time.